Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. Hello everyone, I'm Dorothy Koshu, host of the Benefits Executive Roundtable. Today we're going to be talking about one of probably the least liked employer responsibilities, which is the ACA employer reporting requirement, and the changes for the 2021 filings, which are due in early 2022. I have with me today, once again, Marilyn Monahan of Monahan Law Office. Welcome, Marilyn, and thank you for being here today. Thank you, Dorothy. It's a pleasure being with you today. Well, we really appreciate it. And, you know, you and I go back a, a really long time, and you know that of all the things that I do for benefits and compliance, the thing that I least like to tackle is ACA reporting, and that's one of the many, many, many reasons that I have you around, of course, because I like you too, but uh, to do all the talking <laughs> to do all the talking about this topic, because yes, I had to learn it, and yes, I had to teach it to our clients, with your assistance, by the way, thank you very much, but it's nice to have someone that actually likes discussing it, at least more than I do, so thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Thank you very much, Dorothy, and I do understand your feelings about this particular topic, but let's hope that we can have a discussion here today that will help you and the listeners feel a little bit less intimidated by the process and a little clearer about um, what they need to do to get it started and move forward with it. Yeah, and thank you so much for doing this because, as you know, as we talked about, I'm not happy with doing these things, so this is good. (laughs) Well, there are some changes for the 2021 forms that are filed in early 2022, so we'll just jump right into that for everyone. Uh, First, as a bit of an overview for those listeners who may be new to the IRS ACA reporting requirements, let's start with some basics. Marilyn, first, who needs to file? Well, this part hasn't changed for uh, purposes of the IRS reporting and filing requirement. You have to file if you are an applicable large employer, and that means whether you have 50 or more full-time employees, including full-time equivalent employees during the preceding calendar year. You also have to file if you are a small employer, meaning you have under 50 employees, but you have a self-funded plan. So large employers with either fully insured or self-funded plans have to file, and small employers with self-funded plans have to file. Thank you very much. And as a quick reminder and a bit of background as well, can you tell us about the type of coverage that uh, applicable large employers must offer to their full-time employees? They must offer what the IRS calls minimum essential coverage or MEC coverage that is also minimum value or you'll see the abbreviation used MV. So for an employer to avoid all of the Internal Revenue Code Section 4980H penalties, both of them, both the A and the B penalty, the employer has to offer its full-time employees and their dependent children MEC coverage, which is also minimum value and affordable. And affordable is a defined term in this concept, in this context. It's not what you think is affordable. It's not what your employees think is affordable. It's based on various formulas you apply to the amount that the employee is required to contribute to the cost of coverage. Okay, so under the ACA, who is an employee? Why don't you give us an example of, of what's an employee versus an independent contractor and that sort of thing? 
this can potentially be a complex analysis in some circumstances, but in other cases, it will be fairly straightforward. What you are focused on is your common law employees. So these are the individuals for whom you issue W-2s. Um, the situation gets a little bit more complicated when you have independent contractors because you do not have to offer coverage to independent contractors but then the issue comes down to are you properly classifying your independent contractors some employers don't properly classify their independent contractors they have people who they call independent contractors who really under the law should be considered common law employees and that is where a potential problem could arise for you with regard to your 1094, 1095 compliance obligations and the 4980H penalties, if you called someone an independent contractor who was a common law employee. So my uh, advice to um, employers is, if you have someone who you're designating as an independent contractor and there's a question as to whether or not their status um, has been properly classified, you should consult with your legal counsel um, to make that, to help you make that determination because the effect of misclassifying someone not only impacts the 1094-1095 reporting and the 4980H uh, penalties, it could also affect you under wage and hour issues, workers' compensation issues, and so forth. So it's important to get that classification right up front. So how does an employer determine if someone is categorized as a full-time employee under the ACA? Can you kind of give us some details on that? Yes, this is also potentially uh, a complex situation, although for some of your employees, it'll be easier than others. A full-time employee under the Affordable Care Act is anyone who works on average 30 or more hours per week. So if someone is working 30 or more hours per week on average, they are a full-time employee and you must make them an offer of coverage and you must distribute a 1095C form to them at the end of the year. For other employees, it's a little bit more complicated because their hours might be variable or they might work part-time or they might be seasonal. In that circumstance, the IRS has provided employers with two measurement methods that the employer can utilize in order to determine if a variable hour, a part-time or a seasonal employee does in fact work sufficient hours to qualify as full-time. And those are the monthly measurement method and the look-back measurement method. Okay, I know we're going to get into all the details in this a uh, little bit later on uh, in our webinar on February 8th for Advanced Benefit Consulting. Thank you very much for doing that for us. And we will talk about that uh, a little bit more in a bit. But aren't you excited about that, Marilyn? You get to get into all the details and, and, and get into all of the specifics and talk about the details on the measurement periods and all those types of things. I mean, that's really kind of your thing. So I'm guessing I'm guessing you'll enjoy that webinar. <laughs> Well, I have to say, I do enjoy training and I do enjoy helping employers work their way through these sometimes challenging processes. So yes, <laughs> I have to admit, I do enjoy the training aspects of this. Yeah, exactly. I'm, like I said, I'm glad you do because I don't. So, <laughs> what are the, <laughs> I know, that's terrible for me to admit, but it's the truth. What are the uh, safe harbor methods that can be used to determine affordability? Well, as I mentioned earlier, in order to avoid the 4980H a and B penalties in their entirety, you have to make sure that the coverage you offer to employees is affordable. And that is a defined term under the Affordable Care Act. And what you're looking at when you are trying to determine affordability is the amount that you require employees to pay towards self-only coverage under your lowest cost plan. And they have 
three methodologies that employers can rely upon to make that calculation to determine whether or not the amount the employee has to contribute toward the cost of self-only coverage for your lowest cost plan is affordable. And these three methodologies are referred to as the W-2, the rate of pay, and the federal poverty line safe harbor. Well, what is the most common in, in your opinion and what's the most difficult or the, you know, what's what's the easiest and what's the most difficult if there is such a thing uh, when determining uh, which safe harbor method you want to use as an employer? Well, I haven't run any surveys, but I think I suspect the rate of pay is the most common amongst my client base. The federal poverty line is the easiest to apply. It's a straight bottom line calculation, one number for everyone. So it's fairly easy to apply, but it does, particularly in a state like California, usually result in the lowest contribution rate. So some employers who want to increase the amount, they need to ask their employees to contribute toward the cost of coverage might look toward rate of pay or W-2. Rate of pay also is quite popular because calculating it is fairly straightforward. It's based on the employee's hourly wage. Uh, W-2 is popular in some industries. It usually results in the highest contribution amount on the part of the employees um, because it's based on uh, how much the employees earn and what their ultimate box one wages are at the end of the year. And when I say box one, I'm referring to box one of their W-2. But there's some uncertainty um, involved because you don't know what your employees box one wages are until the end of the year. So you might have made some assumptions when you were calculating affordability at the start of the year, which didn't pan out at the end of the year and you could be facing a B penalty. I would say for many employers, rate of pay is the most straightforward to apply, uh, followed by the federal poverty line safe harbor. Yeah, I know that uh, I think all of our clients use the rate of pay. That's always kind of what we've recommended for pretty much the same reasons that uh, that you just went over. And the W-2 to me is really, as, as you mentioned briefly, is pretty scary because, as you said, you don't know until the end of the year what that amount is. So, yeah, that, that could be scary. So I don't, don't know of anyone myself personally who's used the W-2 method. I, I guess it would work in some industries, as you mentioned, but certainly not for uh, the client base that, that I've, I've worked with over the years so far. I do see W-2 used sometimes, but uh, not as frequently as the other two. And again, it all does depend on your employee base, the industry you work in, um, and other factors uh, that will affect um, which methodology will work best for you in in a certain circumstance. So it's not a a knee-jerk reaction, just picking a a safe harbor. It's something that you should look at and analyze um, in connection with your employee base and figure out what works best for you and your employees under the circumstance. Yeah, for sure. And what are the filing deadlines? So the filing deadlines for filing the forms 1094, 1095 with the IRS are February 28, 2022, if you're filing on paper, and March 31, 2022, if you're filing electronically. Currently, you must file electronically if you're filing 250 or more 1095Cs. The IRS has issued a proposed rule that would change that up and require more employers to file electronically, but so far those rules have not yet been adopted. In addition to the filing deadlines, you have to be cognizant of the furnishing deadlines because in addition to filing with the IRS, you have to distribute these forms to your employees just as you do the W-2s. 
And the IRS issued um, an announcement a while back, giving employers a little extra time to furnish the 1095Cs to their employees. Typically, the deadline would be January 31. They've extended that for 30 days. So the deadline is now March 2. 2022, but employers cannot get any extensions beyond that date. That is the drop dead deadline. You have to get the forms distributed by March 2, 2022. Okay, thank you. Uh, well, let's talk about some other, you mentioned a couple of new developments there. Let's talk about some of those new developments because I'm sure that's why, you know, the majority of people are listening to this podcast today. Everybody always wants to know what's what's new. What do we have to do differently than we've done in the past? So what are the changes that are taking place for the 2021 forms filed early in 2022? The first change is that extension that I mentioned, giving you extra time to distribute the 1095C forms to your employees. And the reason I bring that up again is because there is a proposed rule pending through which the IRS would automatically grant employers an extra 30 days to furnish those forms every single tax year. So we have the relief for this tax year, but they also have a proposed rule pending that would extend that relief for all future tax years as well. So that's something to watch for. Uh, I also mentioned the proposed rule about whether or not you have to electronically file. Um, currently, you have to electronically file if you file 250 or more forms. Um, they are they have proposed some changes to that rule that would mean that of many, many more employers, uh, virtually all employers would have to end up electronically filing the 1094 and 1095 forms. We're still waiting for a final decision on that. With regard to the forms themselves, there haven't been a lot of dramatic changes, but there have been some employers need to know about. So back in 2020, and this remains true in 2021, there's a new requirement on the 1095C. You have to include your plan start month. In prior years, this was voluntary. Now it's mandatory. So if you have a calendar year plan, your plan year start month is January, which there's a spot on the form where you record that as 01. Another change is that if you have a self-funded plan, there's a part three on the 1095C that you have to fill out where you inform the IRS who exactly enrolled in your coverage, which employees and uh, spouses and dependent children actually enrolled. That part three used to show up on the first page of the 1095C. It's now been moved to page three. So the mandate hasn't changed. The information you have to disclose hasn't changed. They just put it on a different page of the form. So don't miss it. Okay. The last. <laughs> I, I'm glad you said that because I would be looking. I would just skip right through it because again, I don't like filling out tax-related forms. So anyway, that's just me. It's sorry. A, it, well, you know, it's a little confusing because you fill out data on page one, then page two are some instructions, and then page three you have to fill out data again. So it could, uh, if you're not scrolling through the whole document, you could miss that page three, thinking, "Oh, we're just going through instructions now." But if you are self-funded, you have to fill out page three. The last major change that you will notice when you start working on your 1095Cs for 2021 is that the IRS had to adapt their forms to allow employers who set up what they call individual coverage health reimbursement arrangements or ICHRAs or ICRAs to report. 
Now, the reality is, in my experience, very few employers have set these up. In fact, I don't have any clients who actually set them up. Some clients have expressed some interest in them. Once they find out what's involved, they usually don't move forward. But since they are allowed by um, IRS regulation, the um, IRS then had to come up with a reporting mechanism. So they have modified the 1095C forms so that employers who have set up ICHRAs can report on them. Um, but for the vast majority of you listening to this podcast, you probably don't have one, and so you don't have to actually worry about these changes. But for your information, when you're looking at the 1095C form, you'll notice there's a line, a line 17, where you record a zip code. That only applies if you have an ICHRA. If you don't, you leave that blank. There's a line for the employee's age on January 1. That's only relevant to ICHRAs. If you don't have one, you leave that blank. And then they created a, some new Series 1 codes, 1L through 1U, that you would use on line 14. Again, if you don't have an ICHRA, you don't have to worry about those additional codes. Okay. Uh, well, it's important to let everybody know or to remind everyone that there is no more good faith penalty relief. I know you've talked about that in the past. Can you explain this and let us know what this means to employers? Yes. The IRS recognized that in the early years of the 1094-1095 uh, reporting, a lot of employers struggled with meeting their obligation, filling out the forms correctly, understanding what their obligations were. And as a result of that, they uh, offered every year since the filing requirement first began what they call good faith penalty relief. And this is how this works. The IRS has the power to impose a penalty of up to $290 per form if you fail to file your 1094 and 1095 forms on time, if you fail to furnish them to your employees, or if you file them on time, but fill them out incorrectly or incompletely. So if you leave out um, some information or you use the wrong codes or you check the wrong box or you provide the wrong number, in theory, the IRS could then pen turn around and penalize you $290 per form. What they've said every year since the uh, reporting mandate started in 2015 is, we will offer you good faith penalty relief. And as long as you file and furnish the forms on time, if you make mistakes in filling them out, we will not penalize you $290 per form so long as you make a good faith effort to comply. Starting with the 2021 forms, the ones you're working on right now, that good faith penalty relief goes away. So if you make mistakes in filling out the forms, if you don't provide all the information requested or you provide incomplete or incorrect information, theoretically, they have the authority to um, penalize you up to $290 per form. If you have uh, if you intentionally disregard the requirement, by the way, that penalty per form goes up to $580. So it can add up. What this does mean is employers really need to work to make certain they're getting the forms right. It is becoming increasingly important for employers to work to make certain that they get it right when they're filing and furnishing and filling out these forms. So. I know we talked about this uh, briefly a bit ago, but uh, let's talk about it again in case you wanted to expand on that a little bit more. Uh, what about the extension of time to furnish the forms that's proposed? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. 
So under existing rules, the employer must furnish a Form 1095-C to each of its full-time employees, as well as part-time employees might be enrolled in coverage if the employer has a self-funded plan. These forms are due under existing rules by January 31, the same day that your W-2s are due. But they have discovered that employers have been struggling to meet that deadline, even though the mandate to furnish and file the 1094s and the 1095s has been in existence since 2015, employers are still having a difficult time meeting that January 31 deadline. So the IRS has issued a proposed rule through which employers will automatically get a 30-day extension of time to furnish those forms to employees. So instead of the forms being due on January 31, they will be due on March 2. And while the uh, proposed rule is pending and before the IRS makes its final decision, they went ahead and announced that, the, that employers could rely on that additional time for the 2021 forms. So that means you have until March 2, 2022 to mail the 1095C forms to your employees. However, no further extensions will be available to you. You must get the forms out by that date. This automatic extension of time I've been talking about is only to furnish the forms. They did not propose an automatic extension of time to file the forms. So you must still file by either February 28 or March 31. However, if you can't meet those deadlines, there is a form you can file with the IRS um, to request an additional 30 days to file, but you have to file that form on or before the deadline. Oh, okay. So there's also a proposed alternative distribution method for forms uh, for the 1095B. Can you tell us about that? In the proposed rule where the IRS is suggesting that they will give employers an additional 30 days to furnish the 1095Cs to their employees, they also have proposed another change. And that has to do with the 1095B forms that insurance companies send out. So insurance companies send out your to your employees who are enrolled in a fully insured health plan, a 1095B form each year. Since the federal government's individual coverage mandate has effectively gone away, not very many people ask their insurance companies for a copy of these forms anymore. So the IRS has proposed that instead of requiring insurance companies to mail out these forms, they will instead allow them to post a notice on their website prominently, um, letting employees know or letting um, their insureds know where and how they can obtain a copy of their 1095B form. So what the insurance companies can do instead of mailing out the forms is post a notice on their website, providing a methodology for employees to contact the insurance company and request a copy of the 1095B form. If the uh, insurance companies do this and follow all the rules and the proposed regulations um, and then send out the notices in a timely manner, they will not have to mail them out as well. So this is a proposal. Um, we don't have a final ruling on it yet, um, but it is something that they did allow insurance companies to do last year as well. So we are waiting to hear on that. So this can be important for employers to know because employees might come into HR and say, hey, why didn't I get that notice this year from my insurance company? My tax 
preparer is asking for it. The response then is you can go, you should be able to go on the website, find a link and obtain the form by um, either a phone call or an, an email request. Yeah, the good the good news is is that's probably going to be a lot easier. The bad news is a lot of times employees First of all, they're not told they have that option. And secondly, there are concerns, of course, on the employee side that, first of all, they may not have access to computers or they may not understand it or, you know, they're, I think leaving that responsibility sometime to the employees uh, could be a little challenging, I think. Um, I mean, I, th- I personally, in the long run, I think that's a good way to do it. Let them go on if they need it. Um, but I can just I could see some potential problems there with some employees that just want everything done automatically for them. You know what I mean? They don't want to have to take the time or energy or effort to, you know, find out where I go, uh, know to log in. How do I log in? Maybe I have to have a password and, you know, uh, set up a username and a password and that sort of thing and they might look at it like that's just too time consuming and then I just see this as being a big nightmare for HR managers because they're going to go back to them and say but uh, I used to get that automatically and why can't I and the HR managers are going to have to take the time to explain to them well this is how it's done now and what's going to happen is they're going to end up doing it for the employees I'm just guessing because I know the clients that I work with um, I just know how the HR managers are going to respond to this and they'll just say okay I don't want to hear you complaint so let me just do it for you so all of a sudden they'll be taking the time out of their day to log in create you know usernames and passwords for them uh, set the whole thing up for them so that they can access these forms and uh, and print them forms say here you go and then they get on with their day and you've just basically you know taken another 20 to 30 minutes uh, for them to do that so then what happens is then again I'm just projecting my own thoughts on this based on what I've seen from HR people uh, and heard from you know, from them, what what employees and how they react is that then the employers are going to even more um, used to HR just doing everything for them. So I think the more they go toward that type of thing, I think it's good in the long run. But in the short run, I think it's going to be tedious. I think it's going to cause a lot more problems from HR managers than than people might actually think about up front. Uh, this is my own personal thoughts on that, by the way. Well, can I add another point to that? And uh, the IRS made this change in part because uh, the individual coverage mandate under the ACA was reduced to zero. And as a result of that, very few employees uh, actually ask for a copy of these forms anymore from their insurance company. However, some of us live in a state like California that has its own individual coverage mandate. That's um, exactly, yeah, that's exactly, by the way, what I was getting toward. I was going to bring that up in a moment. Yeah. <laughs> There are a few other uh, jurisdictions, including the District of Columbia, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Vermont, and Rhode Island, which have their own individual coverage mandates. So uh, your employees who live in those states may be asked by their tax preparers for a copy of the 1095B. And so in those states, there might be increased interest in getting a copy of these forms. Just a reminder, you don't have to attach the 1095B to your tax returns, but tax preparers often ask for it so that they have in their files proof that the individual did have coverage for a certain number of months during the year. Right, right. Well, again, I just always, uh, we deal with a lot of HR people, obviously. So I was just kind of looking out for them, I guess, uh, and bringing that point up. Because as you said, there are states like ours in California that they still have to do this. Um, They still have to have at least 
uh, insurance in place uh, and have a, a, a potential penalty if they don't. So again, it is, you know, like I said, I wanted to bring that up for people that might be listening to this podcast in other states that say, well, why would they even need to do that? There are still states that you do need to do that, like here in California. So thanks for bringing that up. And I'm glad you brought up the other states as well, because it's nice to know that California is not the only state out there uh, that has these things going on. So thank you for that. Uh, well, let's uh, move to another topic on this. Well, I know you sort of already covered this, uh, but let's talk about it again again in case you have additional information you want to share. The IRS electronic filing rules, uh, those, you know, maybe modified. Can you talk a little bit more about this proposal? Certainly. So as we sit here today, um, the IRS requires employers to electronically file their 1094 and 1095C forms if the employer files 250 or more 1095Cs. Under that, the employer can file on paper if it chooses to do so. But the IRS has proposed changing up those rules. And the first change would be is to require basically more employers to file their 1095Cs. Um, if the proposed rules are passed as proposed, then that would mean in the first year, employers who have uh, or file 100 or more 1095Cs must file electronically. And then after that, it's 10 or more 1095Cs must file electronically. But there's an additional twist on this when you're counting up to determine whether or not you meet the threshold of 100 or ultimately 10, you don't just count up 1095Cs anymore. As the rule works now, you have to file electronically if you file 250 1095Cs or separately 250W2s and so on. Under the new proposal, they would add up all the various forms the employer files with the IRS to determine whether or not you met the threshold of 100 or 10. So let's say um, you filed uh, 60 W-2s and 60 1095-Cs, you would be over 100 and in the first year of the new mandate, you would have to file electronically. In future years, if you filed a combined 10 or more W-2s and 1095-Cs, you would have to file electronically. So uh, that could mean a very big change for a lot of employers. Either you're going to have to set up a mechanism, you're going to have to register and set up um, a mechanism with the IRS in order to file the 1095Cs or retain the services of a vendor who's already um, set up with the IRS to do so. So again, these are proposed rules. They haven't been finalized. We don't know what's going to ultimately happen with them, but it is something to keep an eye out for so that you are prepared to make adjustments as necessary if the new rules come into effect as proposed. Okay, thank you. And I know you talked about this. We just talked about this uh, a moment ago uh, in some detail, but uh, let's come back to the changes in state reporting mandates. Uh, can you expand on that a little bit for us? Yes. Several jurisdictions within the United States have their own individual coverage mandate. California is one of them. The others are the District of Columbia, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Vermont, and Rhode Island. All of those jurisdictions except Vermont require the employer to file certain information with their state tax authorities um, in order to provide the documentary evidence that their residents have uh, coverage or have been offered coverage. 
So if you live in one of those states, if you have employees in any of those states, you might, you might have additional furnishing and filing requirements. In California, the filing requirements uh, are monitored by the Franchise Tax Board, the FTB. In California, if you have, uh, if you're an employer that offers a fully insured plan, if your insurance company files the 1095B forms with the state of California, you have met your filing obligation. So that's one thing, it would be a good idea to check with your insurance carrier to make certain that they are doing that. However, if you offer a self-funded plan, there is no carrier to file the 1095B forms, and that means that the Franchise Tax Board expects the employer to file its 1095C forms, not only with the IRS, but also directly with the Franchise Tax Board. And those forms are due by March 31, 2022, although they have posted on their website that they might extend that deadline to May 31, 2022, although they haven't issued the final drafts of the publications which guide employers through this process. Interestingly, California also requires uh, employers to furnish uh, the equivalent of a 1095B or C form to their employees, and the deadline under state law for that is January 31, 2022. Now, last year, this was also uh, in effect. And when I spoke with the Franchise Tax Board, they said that they felt they didn't have the authority to extend that furnishing deadline, just as the federal government had done. However, they didn't actually impose any penalties for employers who didn't meet that deadline. So the deadline is, uh, by statute, January 31, 2022, to furnish the forms to employees in California and to file with the Franchise Tax Board, it's March 31, 2022. Thank you. And, and what about employers that might have employees in some of those other states that you mentioned before California? Where can they go? Uh, is there a uh, particular website or something like that that they can look up in their state? Uh, what should they be looking for to find out what the rules are in those other states? Do you have any idea? Each of those states do have information posted on what the requirements are. So if you have employees in the other jurisdictions that have individual coverage mandates, you should consult your legal and tax advisor as to your furnishing, filing, and reporting obligations. Okay, thank you. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time this week. Thanks so much, Marilyn, for being here today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Dorothy. And Marilyn's going to be back next week for part two of this podcast. But until then, if anyone wants to reach out to you, Marilyn, how can they do that? Well, then call me at 310-989-0993 or send me an email at marilyn at monahanlawoffice.com. Okay. And for those listeners who would like to attend our detailed webinar on February 8th, you can certainly do that. Please go to our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com slash webinars to register. And next week in part two, we're going to tackle the IRS 226J letters, the marketplace appeals, the state of California reporting, and much more. So thanks, everyone. Stay safe and stay healthy. Thanks again, Marilyn. Thanks, Dorothy. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. 
we always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835 or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.